when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. For the judges and this multi-millionaire mogul now has the best kind of goal. The Thunder for 144-8 for John Montgomery. It is Montgomery with it. Canada. Montgomery takes gold and it's good. The Caps have a 20. Oh, Torobrad has gone smack. Torobrad is an Olympic gold medalist. Chuck scores. It's Poulin again. Canada wins gold in overtime. Nadezhka tucks for the line. 121. It is Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for an exciting, exciting interview. Moguls is the sport. You know we love moguls here and off the podium, and we're speaking to triple Aussie Olympic mogul skier Brody Summers, Sochi, Pyeongchang, Beijing, the Olympics that he went to, and an amazing chat here, learning about his journey in the sport, how he got involved in it, his journey across his three Olympic Games, overcoming injury and adversity, his retirement now that he's hung up the skis in a post-Beijing world, and, and... Dale Begsmith. You know it had to come. He was a teammate, competed alongside with him back in Sochi and basically got into the sport because of the man himself. So there's plenty of Dale Begsmith to keep you entertained in this interview as well. So sit back, relax and listen to our chat with triple Australian Olympic mogul skier Brody Summers. One of our favourite sports to talk about here on Off the Podium, the great sport of mogul skiing. And unfortunately, our co-host, Mr. Colin Hilding, Mr. Moguls himself, can't be here today. But I am glad to be able to carry today's interview to speak to a three-time Australian Olympic mogul skier in the great, the one, the only, Mr. Brody Summers. Brody, first of all, welcome to Off the Podium. It is a pleasure to uh, have you on the show today. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to chatting. It's it's. Pumped and excited, as said, moguls, everything along those lines. But I believe you are our first official teammate in the same Olympics as Dale Begg-Smith. Not to take away from Britt Cox, you know, obviously a teammate technically, but I'm talking about in the male side of things. You skied alongside him. And as I said to you in the emails and the lead up to this interview, Dale Begg-Smith will be a big topic of conversation in this one because he is the greatest thing ever since sliced bread, essentially. So um, I, I'm, I'm extra honoured to have that, you know, six degrees of separation between Dale and, and myself now with you in the middle. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. It's a good thing you qualified that because I was about to say, I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure you've had Brit on here at least a couple of times and she's definitely a teammate as well. But, um, but no, I, I see what you mean. And yeah, I feel very fortunate to have had that uh that history with with dale obviously he was at the right from the onset of my career he's been a massive inspiration uh and even as he retired he was still a big inspiration for me in the latter years of my career so um yeah i feel really really privileged to have had 
the opportunity to to spend time um, with him as a teammate and to to train alongside him and sort of see how the best in the business really do it. Well, we'll be finding more about that, uh, of course, along the way. But we're here to talk about you, mainly Brody, and and the mm-hmm. journey through into the sport, which I believe you started. A little bit late, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's technically late by mogul skiing standards, but in terms of some other sports when people are starting at a very young age, I believe you didn't really start until you are about 13, but sort of what was it that drew you into moguls and, and were you much of a skier beforehand? Was this something that kind of was building until you eventually sort of took this on properly? Um, yeah, so I suppose, yeah, probably a little bit late. Uh, yeah, like you mentioned, um, yeah, 13, 14 was when I really – decided that this is the sport for me um in terms of getting into it it was probably it was a couple of things um obviously as common in australian skiing uh i went down the interschools route and um sort of tried to branch out and and try a bit of everything and had a teammate uh in uh junior school who was a member of the team bull riders program and happened to be a very very good mobile skier um, and sort of saw him performing at a high level in the sport and just thought, how good's that? I want to do that. Um, and that kind of coincided with the Torino Olympics in 2006. And I obviously the ones that, that Dale won. And I remember watching those and the sort of the intersection of those two things were just massive for me. And I saw that and it was just like, it was just about as pure, as, uh, inspiration as you can get. And, um, from that point on, I sort of, I was like, this is, this is really for me. Um, I was lucky. I had very supportive parents managed to convince them to sign me up to the team bull riders program. Um, in, in, yeah, when I was two, uh, yeah, in 2006. So not long after those Olympics and, um, and then, uh, just sort of went with it from there. But, uh, I was without having a huge amount of technical background in the sport. Um, I, would say I was really lacking on the technical side of thing, uh, side of things when I first started out. And so my sort of first year or two were, were pretty much just spent actually learning how to turn a ski properly and how to, how to get on your edge and how to control a turn. Um, and then over time, like it was pretty evident, I think with my, with my first uh, group of coaches that I was just obsessed with models and that's all I wanted to do. And then, so it was just kind of like, just let him go and, and that's what I did. So yeah, it was, um, I remember those first few years at Buller, like the obsession was just, it just never left. It was, I was always out first lift before training. Um, I think I could, I managed to get like half an hour in every morning before we actually met up for training. And so I was just out there just trying to work on, on the technical things. And then after training finished at like, like two thirty or three o'clock in the afternoon. And then I would just go over to wood run at Mount Buller um sort of the infamous mogul run where they they used to host the april mogul challenge and i would just spend the rest of the day there and just cut laps until until i got told i couldn't go anymore and the lifts were going to shut so that was wow. um that was the early years for me the yeah it was just kind of obsession right from the start and then it just yeah the more i got into it the more that kind of evolved and and the love and for the and passion for the sport was just always there it's always just a sport that intrigues me so much with that passion where people get involved in it because skiing Great sport, fun, exciting. Um, but when you add some bumps to it and a couple of jumps to it, you know, it, I mean, it's sort of something which you go like, shit, that's going to kill your knees. Uh, you know, the extra element of all the, the tricks and the technical side of things. So I love kind of hearing that 
you see it, you do it, you get addicted to it because I guess for a lot of Australians in particular and around that time I can imagine too before Dale won the gold, Moguls was a little bit foreign to uh, I guess Australia around about that time. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think he definitely what he created for the sport in Australia is this legacy that you're just seeing feel like carry all the way through to to even now to the most recent medal um, with Jakar getting the gold in Beijing and then also Matt getting the the silver in Pyeongchang before that. Um, it's just, yeah, he's left a massive legacy. And I, I guess in terms of the actual, like the passion for the sport and what really, um, where I think a lot of that uh, like attraction comes in, like this, like what, what about the sport is really attractive to the people that are sort of obsessed with it and, and take it um, a long way is I think it's something to do with that. There's this challenge, there's this difficulty, there's the, it's the reward of overcoming the difficulty associated with the sport. So like I always sort of say to people, I'm like, oh, if you, if you think about moguls, it kind of combines the hardest elements of all of the disciplines on snow into one. And then you've just sort of got to, you got to try and piece it all together in, in less than 30 seconds and, and make it look good. So that, so the judges reward you for it. Um, but there's just so many different little things that you've got to manage throughout from the moment you push out the start gate until you cross the finish line. So I think it's that, yeah, it's that satisfaction that you derive from, from that process of, of acquiring the skills to then be able to do it at a higher level, do it better, do it faster, do it, do more impressive tricks, whatever. Um, all the elements of the sport, when you do start chipping away at it and then you really sort of, you start getting to that level where you're like, I can execute this at a higher level. It's a, it's a really, really good feeling. And it's just a uniqueness with any winter sport, as I've said so many times on this show, that for people like us growing up in Australia where we're not really surrounded by snow, it's always that fascinating thing when a Winter Olympic straws around and you see mogul skiing, you see cross-country skiing, curling, these sort of things that are so foreign to us, which it's exciting because there's not really a summer sport, uh, I guess, relationship with any I, I you don't sprint down a hundred meter track and have to go over bumps and then flip in the middle of it you know it's kind of there's not really an equivalent in the summer sports to moguls so it's sort of a it's very intriguing on that aspect from a viewer's perspective and you know as you're talking about there the the competitive nature as well which would, would you would did you go often to the snow sort of growing up was this something that was you, you know in in the family or sort of family trips that you would at least go to the snow to be around a bit of winter sports that led into that switch to moguls yeah yeah so it was it was from a pretty like i think i first actually saw snow got on snow when i was i think two or three years old um and we would it was like a family thing you sort of you know like i think a lot of a lot of australian families you go up like one or two weekends a year and um and just yeah you, you get exposed to it that way and then yeah and it was kind of that crossover period between doing that and then signing up to to compete in inter schools and then it was sort of like okay i get to go for a week every year um and then if i got good enough and i qualified to go to nationals then that's another you know almost a week up in wherever it was that year in new south wales or false creek for during when i was um competing i'm not sure where it is now um but yeah it was sort of yeah i started i started out yeah just just a little bit of exposure and then yeah, as I mentioned, I was really fortunate. My parents were were super supportive. Is if if I kind of demonstrated the passion and I showed a lot of commitment to wanting to get better, then they were like, okay, well, we'll provide the opportunities for you. So um, yeah, as I got better, as I really dove into it, I just got more and more opportunities to be on snow. And um, 
And then obviously, yeah, it got to the point where it kind of became a full-time gig. And then I spent my majority of every year overseas or in the snow somewhere in some part of the world. So it's, um, yeah, it's funny how it snowballs. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse the pun. Yeah, no, well, that was a perfect pun there. You, you, you yeah. worked that in there very, very well with that, which it is always fascinating to kind of think of how that can turn and you, you pick that up. But were you doing many other sports at the same time too? Were you sort of just trying your hands at uh, everything else as a kid? Yeah, I, yeah, I'd yeah probably characterize myself. I was pretty sporty uh, growing up, and funnily enough, in the years leading up to that, that um, yeah, when I was like, I think probably at the ages of like ten through twelve, I was in my mind, I was actually like, I'm going to be a professional tennis player. That was my, that was my big sport, and I loved it, and I, I, I played a lot of it, and. Um, yeah, as you do when you're that young, you, you think you're pretty good. I've had a lot of confidence and thought I was thought I was <laughs> the ducks nuts. And uh, and then, yeah, it, I don't know what it was. Um, it's probably a combination of all those elements that I described before. But then just something about mogul skiing, like it just it just bit me. I got the bug and and um, I pretty much all but hung up my my tennis racket and my runners and and decided to trade them in for skis and ski boots and. And, uh, and then just, yeah, crossed over from that point. But generally, I don't know, always had a, I just generally actually all the boys, um, that I sort of got to call my teammates. And actually, I think everyone generally in the team as well, um, over, over the years in my career, like we, we, we love generally everyone just loves sport and participating in sports. So even when we were outside of training, um, on snow in the mogul team, it was always like, all right, well, can we go and play? Like I always remember in Zermatt, you'd go and play soccer with a lot of the, the other athletes from other countries who were also training there at the same time in, in September and October. So, you know, like it's, you, you go and train on snow in the morning and then you find an opportunity if there's like an hour or two in the afternoon, you go, there's a big soccer field there and you get people from like Sweden, the US, Canada, um, like Norway, like all these, all these countries, everyone comes together and plays soccer together. Like there's just that there's that love for sport There's that, you know, always want to be doing something active and, and really making the most of that time. And um, yeah, I suppose as well, there's always the, the competitive element, give it, give an athlete any opportunity to compete at something and they'll usually dive head first. So that, um, that, that always, yeah, contributes as well. And also <laughs> you can imagine growing up in Melbourne, I mean, sporting capital of the world, right? You can't really avoid it. <laughs> yeah, true. And it, yeah, we are super lucky. I mean, like you go to, like I always think about, it. you go to the MCG and watch a footy, like a big footy match. And it's like it's like going to the occult, like the modern day equivalent of the Coliseum. You know, it's just yeah. it, the atmosphere is insane. But people in Melbourne like properly love their sport and really get behind their favourite teams and their favourite sports people. So, um, yeah, growing up in that environment, I mean, I remember going to the Australian Open as a kid, which was probably the yeah, where the the obsession with tennis came from. So, um, yeah, very very fortunate. Had had a lot of exposure to sport growing up and even now that I've retired from skiing sport is still a huge part of my life and just kind of staying fit and active and healthy it's I think when you you're really privileged as an athlete you uh you sort of learn how good you can feel when you really look after yourself physically and when you when you put a lot of effort into training and nutrition and sleep and all those things and then so even after you retire like you don't really want to lose that I mean obviously you're going to lose it to some extent and I've actually it's amazing how much weight I've lost since I've finished. Actually, I've been like, wow. so like the, the kilos has dropped and just losing muscle at like a rate of knots, which is kind of alarming because uh, I'm not training as much as I was. But um, but yeah, like you sort of you do learn those things as an athlete. You learn how to look after yourself, and then 
you want to retain as much of that as you can because it just it just generally feels nicer to be operating at a high level like that. You feel like you can kind of get more out of every day. I've I've got to ask just on the topic while we're talking about sports and everything Melbourne. Who's your team? Do I do I ask this on air right now? <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose I can answer it. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know if I want to after this season. Um, I'm a West Coast supporter, but that's because oh. I was actually born. I was born in Perth, um, of course, and yeah. I was actually over there this past week. But uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, born in Perth, so yeah, been a West Coast supporter most of my life, and um, and. I mean, we had some good years in there when I was a bit younger, and let's say that we're in a bit of a, a, a build phase at the moment. But, um, but I don't know. To be honest, I, I've it's something I'm looking forward to now about um, spending more time in Melbourne now that I've retired, not traveling so much. I feel like I'll actually be able to sort of stay on top of it a bit more, follow it a bit more. I, I never followed it super closely i was always kind of aware what was going on and i loved going to the footy when i was a kid but i haven't gone a huge amount over the last few years because it was just i was always away during winter so you know, um, get those weird hours you know particularly i guess if you're in europe or north america to, to watch a game where you might not win i, I know that experience too well <laughs> yeah <laughs> it can be a bit soul destroying i mean for me it was always like yeah when the footy season's on in australia it was it was usually oh i suppose Maybe I'd be in Whistler at some points, but yeah, usually it would just be up in New South Wales or something, and you kind of you're you're at Perisher or Jindabyne, and you sort of you just feel it's a bit it's a bit you throw it in the too hard basket to go yeah. to go and watch the footy for a weekend and so on. But I got to drive like eight hours to Melbourne or six hours to Sydney. It's it could be yeah. a bit much. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I'm a Carlton supporter, Brody, so we're still mourning okay. what happened there. Uh, we just yeah. um, you know uh, at least at least you won a premiership in the last 500 years, so uh, <laughs> stay in know. there. Exactly. Hanging in there basically with it too. (laughs) But when it came to sort of the Olympics, you know, you touched on obviously seeing Dale win in 2006, but prior to that, were you a kid that every four years would be glued to the TV watching the Olympics, be it summer or winter? And of course, as a kid as well, you would have been, what, seven around Sydney? So, I mean, as most kids, as we all know, that's age, seeing the Olympics in Australia was a pretty big deal as well. Yeah, it definitely was. I actually remember going, um, so my family and I, we drove up for the Sydney Olympics. And I I don't remember, I don't know if I actually got to go to any events, but my, I think my parents, they went to one or two events. And um, and I just remember being there around the atmosphere. And just, it was just like this, it's something so, so special when you're at an Olympic Games that it's sort of, it, it's, it's like nothing else you've ever experienced. So I remember kind of getting a taste of that when I was that age. And which is why I'm actually really excited that we've got the bid for uh, 2032 in Brisbane because yeah. I think it's just the the amount of inspiration that young Australian kids are going to get from, I mean, also kids all over the world, but the fact that it's, you know, it's on home soil, you get the Olympic Games on home soil, Australian sport will benefit from that like enormously for years and years and years beyond Brisbane 2032. So, um yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, for me personally, I remember during the Sydney 2000 Olympics, I, I sort of saw it and, and yeah, got, got a taste for how special just the Olympic experience can be. And that wasn't even participating. That was just, you know, sort of being in around it. Uh, and then over the over time, yeah, obviously being a big sporting fan, always yeah, watched a lot of it. My, I know my mum's a big swimming fan, so I watched a lot of swimming at the games when I was growing up. But uh, I was 
never built to be a swimmer. Unfortunately, my legs are just too heavy. <laughs> not, not, uh, no career yeah, change in for Brisbane. You're not going to just no, quickly no, switch no. it up, right? <laughs> I feel like, I feel like really good swimmers. They kind of go along like this and, and, and I just drag like that and just yeah, horribly inefficient when I'm in the pool. And I always actually, I always associate swimming with rehabbing an injury. So it's, it's, it, there's not a whole lot of positive association there for me. <laughs> not quite probably just better, yeah. Better gloss over that one. But, um, but no, I and actually, do you know something that that really, I I think, I my appreciation for the Olympics just like it got like I've always loved it and I thought I've always found it so special. But it really got renewed uh, in Tokyo 2020. It that for me was one of the most memorable Olympic experiences of my life, even though I wasn't there and I was just supporting Australians from from back in you know from back home. I just remember watching, I was glued to the, we were training up in Perisher at the time. And I was just like every moment that I wasn't training, I was glued to the TV. And I just remember watching and I was so excited to see, like, it was such a great Olympics for for Australia yeah. and watching so many of these performances that were, you know, not only world beating, but like, but like record breaking performances, they were just, it was, it, it got me so fired up. And especially because we had our Olympics like you know, about a year later, it was just like the perfect thing to like really to inspire all of that hard training that led up to the Beijing 2022 Olympics and, and, and really like get that extra little bit of motivation. And I found that across the board um, for everyone in our team as, as we led up to Beijing 2022, it was just like, we, we, de we derived so much inspiration from the summer Olympic team in Tokyo and just took that all the way through to, to Beijing. It was, it was, yeah, incredible. I love hearing that because, as you said, it was such a unique situation where the winters were so close to the summers and the fact that Australia was so successful in Tokyo and then so successful in Beijing, it was just kind of this real little golden patch. And then I guess if you lumped in the Commonwealth Games as well, within 12-month period, we've had three big multi-sport events where Australia has done very well, which is just a motivating factor. And, and I think for you too, Brody, like the, the love of the Olympics and everything, you mentioned Brisbane. I, I know you're now on the AOC Athletes Commission, which does that role allow you to have an input or help towards Brisbane 2032? I mean, kind of what does that actually mean for you now moving forward as you continue to maybe be involved in the Olympics in a different capacity now? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, first of all, I feel very, um, I guess, privileged to be in the position that I am to, to be on the, the AOC Athletes Commission. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a real, for me personally, especially, it feels like a real big honor to sort of represent uh, the voice or the interests of the athletes um, as it relates to the Olympic movement in Australia. So in terms of how it interplays with Brisbane, I think that there are, um, there's opportunities for us to engage and to, to provide input where we can. And uh, I assume over, over as we get closer as well, that that'll probably ramp up too. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a, it just feels like a, a genuine privilege. So we, we sort of, we, we liaise with the AOC on, on a lot of different factors that are relevant to, um, not only the Olympic experience, like during games time, but also how do we best prepare athletes and how do we best get them in the place where they need to be to perform at their optimal level when games time comes around once every, you know, four years or two years, depending on how you look at it. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a, it's something that I've, I've obviously, yeah, like, as you could tell from before, I was quite excited 
knowing that we have Brisbane coming up in 2032. And I think it'll be one of those things that we do get to engage with um, as, as the as the time approaches nearer. Um, and at this stage, it's still very early in the planning phases. But I'm excited to see how those things um, sort of, you know, come across our desks, so to speak. Well, putting something on your desk, if you've got these connections moving forward, I'm selling this big because I think this is a perfect idea for Brisbane 2032. And I've sold this to the two people involved here. I think when it comes to the cauldron in 2032, we can have an iconic moment where you've got two iconic Queenslanders involved. You have Kieran Perkins coming along. He's got the torch. He's ready. You know, the, the gabbers are light. Yes, go, Kieran. Light the torch. Light the torch. Light the torch. As he goes to light it, he falls over. Everyone gasps. Oh, what's happening? What's going on? And out of nowhere, Stephen Bradbury picks up the torch <laughs> and lights the cauldron iconic Olympic moment. Can you help sell that for me? Both Stephen and Kieran are on board with this, Brody. So, like, we've got to get this out there to the AOC. Is, that, is there confirmation around that? Like, they're actually on board with this? I, I've, they've both been on this show and they, they both are keen for the idea. So, okay. you know, it just it needs AOC approval now that they're on board. So i got, I got to say, I mean, actually, I don't even think it's AOC approval, to be honest. Now it's the, it's the planning committee for the game. So the AOC actually relinquishes that um, to the planning committee for the games uh during that period of time but um i do think it's a it's a great idea a phenomenal idea i i can i can see that getting a lot of traction with the crowd and sports fans around the world they'll they'll it has to be yeah they'll recognize the iconic moment and and be like how good this because <laughs> you know sadly like it's it's the obvious one is all oh, steven's not a summer athlete but i mean sadly realistically australia's probably never going to host a winner although technically these are a winter olympics because they are being held in australia in the winter so you can sort of you know read between the lines there and you've got to celebrate <laughs> iconic queenslanders i know there's a bunch out there but i mean kieran perkins with stephen bradbury it's a match made in heaven come on i mean I, i'm on board with it i mean and in the end as well like in terms of that distinction between summer and winter like the way i look at it we are all one team we are the australian yeah. olympic team and that's and that's what I've, I've really gotten appreciation for that a lot more recently in my role on the athletes commission i think it's you know really all we're trying to do is just create the best possible atmosphere for future Australian Olympians to be able to perform at their best on the world stage. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember kind of when I was younger, there was always that little bit of like, argy-bargy, like yeah, summer versus winter, but yeah, as I get older and appreciate it more, I just sort of realized that we're, we're one team we're we're representing the nation and, and we're just trying to do it to the best of our ability. So, um, yeah, I think we're all you know, we're all in this together. <laughs> wow, exactly. That that that's how it uh, that's how it works. Y- your journey to your first Olympics, you make your World Cup debut in two thousand and eleven, and you qualify just right before the Olympics with a couple of great World Cup performances. I mean, was that always a goal for you to try and get to to Sochi, or had you sort of set your sights ahead to say twenty eighteen? And if Sochi happened, it, it was a, a bonus. Um, no, I'd say I really wanted it. Like I was. And I knew, I knew, well, that's what I guess like internally, I was like, it's a bit of a, it's a stretch, but it's not impossible. And I think the sort of the, the rhetoric that I picked up on around, I guess the community at the time was like, and yeah, it's probably, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but I, I don't know, I was a bit like a dog with a bone. I just had it in my mind that I was going to do it. And I was really lucky. I had a few people kind of advocating for me to get opportunities to, to be able to compete on world cup. And, um, and I also had a couple of performances in there that backed that up as well. So it was, it, it sort of, I'd say the stars aligned to some extent and, um, was able to get those opportunities to, 
um, to represent Australia uh, in those Olympic qualifying events. And, and I remember, yeah, I, I podiumed at a, a, Nor- a North American Cup event over in, uh, where was it? In the US, I think, or Canada. No, it was in Canada. Um, and that was sort of one of the, the boxes that I needed to tick uh, in order to, to then earn the right to go and uh, represent Australia at the World Championships in Voss in, in Norway. And, um, and so I was able to, uh, to successfully do that. And then I went over to Voss and it was just like myself, I remember myself, um, Sam Hall and Matt Graham, we all just sort of had like these, these breakout performances where everyone was like, where did these Aussies come from? (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so I think, yeah, it was, it was that, and that just sort of like, that was where the ball really got rolling. Um, so from that point on, it was like, okay, I got the, i I got the support of um, the OWI, the Olympic Winter Institute of Australia, and um, I was sort of on the national team, and and then getting getting those really good training opportunities and those competition opportunities as well, where I was like, okay, every one of these events now is a is an Olympic qualifying event, and I'm in the mix, and and I can I can you know try and earn myself a few points that go towards getting in that um, that top Olympic adjusted top thirty ranking that was required to to then make the team for Sochi. So. Um, it was, a. I wouldn't say it was as smooth a road as I would have hoped. Like it, it literally came down to the very last event, uh, before, um, the games that, that I was able to qualify. And, and originally I wasn't even planning to go to that event. So, wow. yeah, I remember, um, we had initially planned during that last world cup to have like a, a pre-Olympic camp, like a training camp over in Colorado and then, and then head over to Sochi, uh, and Unfortunately, I didn't have a very good event in Deer Valley uh, in the second to last uh, World Cup before the games. And so all of a sudden it was like, I remember that was an emotional time too. I was like, I, I, I remember it clear as day. That was, yeah, that one really hit me hard. But anyway, we sort of, I was all, all that night, I remember planning with my, co- with my coaches and, um, and liaising with our kind of like support staff and figuring out how am I going to get myself over to Val St. Combe that last event that I wasn't planning to go to and get myself in the start gate so that I can do what's required to, to qualify to make the team. Um, so I was really lucky, had heaps of support from the team there and we, and we went over there and I ended up, I, I also had a bit of history with that course. I'd competed at a few Norams there and not, it was the first time the World Cup Tour had ever competed on that course, I think. So I felt I had this little bit of underlying confidence. I was like, oh, I've got a, you know, I've got a bit more experience here than, than the rest of the field or than most of the rest of the field. And that just kind of helped me, I think, carry a bit more confidence through the week. And I ended up having my best performance of the season there um, and doing what was required to, to then qualify for the team and, um, and head over to Sochi. But uh, I don't know. It, uh, I remember I, I comp- that, that course has like notoriously sharp moguls and you, you tend to feel pretty beaten up after skiing it. And, um, and we got, and just because of how, last minute all the logistics were it was it was a real schmozzle um and so i remember we we finished competing that day like i made it to finals competed and i think i came 13th i think um and then we ended up getting straight in the car and driving i mean like six or seven hours to albany um in new york from from val saint in quebec um that like that afternoon that evening and then getting on the plane and flying over to meet the rest of the team in Colorado. And I remember getting out of the car at the other end and my back was so crook. (laughs) And um, unfortunately that was, that actually ended up being like quite a significant injury, which I carried through 
to the 2014 games and then ended up carrying beyond that and having to have a year off after um after that those olympics because my back was just not in a good way and so i, I don't think it was an acute event per se but I, I think that was probably sort of like the 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 straw that broke the camel's back so to speak yeah. um but uh but yeah anyway we got to the games and and it, yeah like we like we sort of touched on at the start of the, the podcast i was able to compete alongside uh dale and um and that for me was a bit of a dream come true. Like I remember my my sports psych at the time, Ferry, he uh, he took this photo of Dale and I standing in the Stargate together just um, right before inspection. Uh, we're sort of peering over the edge and looking down the course. And, and that for I me- found that on your Insta. I saw, I saw I was looking yeah. at it right now. It's a great <laughs> shot. Yeah, for me, that's like, I love that photo because obviously like he was the, he was a huge inspiration for me in my mogul skiing career. So to have that experience of, standing alongside him at the top of my course about to compete in my first Olympic games was, was massive and, and a really, really special memory for me uh, personally. And yeah, in, in my career and what I was able to do in the sport. Cause I can imagine it's one of those things that, you know, many people are lucky to meet say an idol or somebody they've looked up to, but there's a difference between meeting them versus being their teammate and competing in that, field in which you've admired them for i mean i'm a massive formula one fan michael schumacher is my idol that'd be the same as if you said ben you're now michael schumacher's teammate at ferrari i'd be like fuck like this is wow this is really happening so i can imagine that you know having that and you you've seen him win a gold eight years prior silver four years prior and it's great photo that you've got i mean it's just an awe-inspiring moment i can see why you love that photo it's a great photo yeah it's just yeah it's just like a really kind of i guess a, a really special memory from yeah, I mean exactly how you just characterized it with with the Schumacher um, example. Like it's just, it's I, I can't imagine it's very common getting it being able to to actually be a teammate with and compete alongside your, your childhood um, idol or hero. So um, it just kind of I think it just kind of speaks to like how special um, sport can be in various different ways. And that for me was something really special and, and a memory that I'll sort of cherish forever. So yeah, very very uh, privileged. I've got a couple of Dale questions which you might be able to clear up for us, the mythos of the man himself. When it came to Sochi, is it basically true that he was just laying around not doing a whole much and he got a phone call, oh, do you want to come keep a show? Yeah, all right, I'll, I'll come do it. Like, I mean, it was a pretty late call-up, wasn't it, him to make that decision to just, yeah, third Olympics, I'm not doing much, I'm not busy this winter. Sure, why not? I'll give it a crack. Um, no, I think it was, that was all, it came from him. I think it was, I mean, my, t- my understanding is it was like, it was, that was internal motivation and he decided he wanted to come back and, and give it another crack. And, um, and I think the skill level was definitely there to be able to do it. I mean, you look at his first few events of the season and he hadn't, like, he hadn't competed in years and he came out and was like in the super final on his very first world cup back in Finland. And I was, I was just like, what? <laughs> how <laughs> but it just speaks to the like the phenomenal skill level that he had and the mastery of the sport that he had like it was really his technical ability was 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 up there with the greats of all time like it really is something special um and no it's funny though that you, you sort of bring that up like I, I do remember there was this one moment um obviously like he was given his age and where he was in his career like he he started carrying some some physical um I guess you know, issues that he had to manage on an ongoing basis. So, like I remember, for example, at that at that World Cup in Deer Valley, the second to last one that I told you that I didn't do very well at, 
um, we had our first, uh, so we always, you know, before an event, we always get two training days and then two days or one or two days of competition. And on the first training day, um, he elected not to come out and ski the course. And we were all like, like, this is like one of the hardest courses on tour. Like, how are you, like, you've you got to make the most of every single minute that you get on this course, right. To figure it out before the event. And he was like, ah, oh, no, nah, it's going to be different tomorrow anyway. Um, <laughs> like, he's like, he's like, I've, I've looked at the forecast, like it's going to snow a lot. And the course already, already changes so much from, from day to day anyway. Like, oh, it'll be okay. And I kind of, I realized like afterwards that he was actually, he was just sort of managing his body and he had some, he had some stuff there that he had to sort of be careful that he didn't overdo it before the event so that he was in a position to actually be able to compete. Um, but I remember like myself, Matt and Sam at the time, we were just like blown away by like, this guy is like his level of confidence is just on another, on a, like on another planet. Like he, that, that course intimidates a lot of people like in, in quite a big way, because it's just, you stand in the start gate, you look down this top section, you're like, Oh my, how am I going to, how am I going to negotiate this little, this tricky little beast? And, um, and cause it's just really, it's like sharp, it's jagged, like it, it, it's steep, it's icy. And generally you got to be really precise with kind of your speed and how, how big you take the top jump and all those sorts of, there's all these little nuanced factors around that course that you've really got to, it just feels like you never have enough time to figure it out before the event gets underway. And, um, and I just remember him. Yeah. He, he, he missed that first training day, but he came out on the second training day. He kind of did what he needed to. And then he came out and he, I can't remember it. I can't remember what his result was exactly, but you know, off the back of, of that event and the Rooker event in Finland, he was, he'd done, he'd done what he needed to, to qualify for the Olympics. And then he was like, all right, well, I'm good now. So it's like, it's just, <laughs> it was so, it was so clinical. And for me at the time being like an emerging athlete and trying to, you know, still so much technical skill yet to be acquired in my career. And I just remember seeing that being like, wow, wow. that's mastery. <laughs> that's, that's insane. That's just incredible. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the the enigma of him. Trust me, I've got 407 other questions we can clear up throughout this interview too, buddy. Don't worry. <laughs> but that's, that's just what an incredible story with that. I mean, your, your own Olympic experience. So, I mean, first of all, as always, we ask all our guests just, the initial sort of outside of the competition. So you're soaking up the atmosphere, be it the, the opening ceremony, closing ceremony, village life. I can imagine a very unique games in Sochi in Russia, of course. But I mean, do you take those moments in your first Olympics to do that? Or is that something you decided to do a little bit more of say in your second or third Olympics? Um, so I actually, I never went to an opening ceremony for the Olympics that I uh, went to. Um, but that's, I guess, just because of the nature of the the mobile competition, it's always in the first couple of days of the of the games period. So um, that was always just kind of like a non-negotiable within the mobile team. It was like, all right, well, we're here for performance reasons primarily. So um, yeah, bit of a sacrifice there. But um, but yeah, I did. I got to go to the closing ceremony uh, in Sochi, and and I remember it just being actually. I just remember that I, I kind of soaked up the whole Olympic experience in Sochi after our event. And I remember it just being like this whirlwind of, of, it just didn't feel like reality. Like it was, you're just in this world that is, is so far from reality. Like everything, everything about it feels, feels different and just on another level. Um, it, it just, yeah, I just, I just remember it's, you don't actually, you sort of, I guess you, you acknowledge it to some extent whilst you're there, but it's only when you really come home and you re-enter the normal world, the real world, that you're like, wow, 
life was really different at the Olympics. And, and it's sort of like, and, and you go to like a cafe and you're like, oh, they're like, oh, that'll be like you know, four bucks fifty or for your coffee or something. You're like, oh, I got to pay for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like those, those sorts of things. But um, Wear your uniform, but- Brody. If you got the rings on, I think I'm an Olympian. <laughs> Come on, that's free, isn't it? Right? <laughs> uh, I tried that at Woodfrog. It doesn't work. It's, oh, um, <laughs> damn. <laughs> nah, it's, uh, nah, I, th- I think the, the really special thing about the Olympics that, that I found you know, other than obviously the primary reason that you're there to compete and to, to, to represent your country. Um, it's the, it's the time afterwards where you get to go and support uh, other teammates um, competing in their disciplines. So like I remember, for example, in, in um, Sochi, the women's event was after, I think it was after the men's. No, maybe that's, a, maybe that's incorrect. In Beijing, it was after the after the men's. So I remember mm-hmm. you sort of you, so you go and get to watch the the women compete, um, and then like I remember in Pyeongchang, we went and watched uh, the epic half pipe final showdown with like Sean White, Scotty James, and nice. and Yumu and all those guys, and like and like you're there, and you and because every yeah, you know, there is something special about Olympic games. You know, like you're there, and everyone's wearing their team colours, and there's just like this huge sense of of pride that all the nations carry around when they're walking around and they're and they're um, you know that you know that they're representing their country and there's like everyone just has this enormous like sense of pride and there's just a level of excitement around it is is yeah it's it's indescribable um so yeah i i took the opportunity in 2014 to to really soak all that up and then in 2018 um other than the half bite final I, I didn't hang around for too long uh because i i ended up hurting my knee there and uh and to be honest, I was a little bit, uh, I was, I wouldn't say I was in the happiest frame of mind given, given the sort of the five month that had transpired leading up to that Olympics. It was a pretty bumpy ride. Um, again, excuse the pun. Sorry. You're on uh, fire today, bro. It's almost <laughs> three right now. I'm going to check these off. This is great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, Come back I'm every week. You're bringing it. humor to the show finally. It's yeah, taking a while. Yeah. No, I've got nothing. I've got nothing on you. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I was pretty eager to get home after, after the event in, career and then obviously in like i actually in 2022 i would have loved to have to hung around and and really uh, knowing that was going to be my last olympics i would have loved to have really just soaked up all the atmosphere but um but with covid and everything we had the the 48 hour rule that we had to be out of the country so um it uh yeah i'm glad i got that experience in sochi and i hope in the future there will be those experiences for for new olympians who are sort of starting their olympic journey because it is pretty special it um I mean, like I alluded to before, it's it's just this environment that is is just it's like yeah, it's really really hard to describe the the all everything about it. But it, you just feel it's such a it's such an special feeling, an incredible feeling, and um and one that you sort of cherish for the rest of your life. So um, yeah, hopefully the world will go back to a place where where future Olympians will be able to enjoy that uh, going forward. It's it's such an intriguing thing to think about when you're in those moments and you obviously can have no clue what's going to happen in four years and everything. And I know talking to a lot of our summer athletes, for example, who say went to Rio and was like, well, this is a weird games. I can't wait to go to the next one where it's maybe a bit more normal. And then obviously Tokyo wasn't exactly uh, normal. So I look back at Rio and go, well, that was a normal Olympic. So it's <laughs> sort of interesting. Because I remember Sochi just all the media around that about the facilities and there were the journalists taking pictures of like their hotel rooms and kind of, you know, that, that facilities and all that kind of fun stuff. But I mean, in hindsight, Sochi does still seem like a very interesting Olympic games, but I mean, 
that experience in Russia, I mean, it's a, it's a unique country, obviously not flavor of the month at the moment, but um, yeah, I can imagine just the things you would have experienced in, in Russia would have been insane. Yeah, I do remember. And because obviously because of the last, like the last minute nature of how I qualified to, to go to those games, I didn't go to, to the test event the year prior, um, the year prior or two years prior. I can't remember when it was, but either way, I, I wasn't there. So when I was there for the games, it was my it was my first time on the ground in Russia, and I just remember being like, "Whoa, culture shock! This is <laughs> this is just a yeah, this is something entirely different." But um, I don't think I experienced it, you know, to quite like to the same way, for example, that my family did. Like they were sort of outside of the Olympic bubble, and they really got to experience sort of like authentic what Russia's like. I think, <laughs> um, at least from how they described it to me. Uh, whereas when you're in the Olympic bubble, like you sort of you are to some extent shielded uh from a lot of things so like i remember we flew into sochi uh members of the the aoc uh team were were there kind of ready to to grab us and pick us up and um they grabbed all our bags we just went into cars and we went straight to we stayed at a sub site so we weren't in the village uh prior to our competition we 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 stayed in this subsite, which was kind of, it was up in Rosa Huta um, village, but I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, by the way. I'm just hoping. <laughs> You're on off the podium. Gonna, Pronunciation is yeah. nothing on this show, Brody. It's yeah, fine. Yeah. I'm just going to qualify <laughs> that by saying I actually have no idea. I've heard, I've heard people say Rosa Huta, Rosa Huta. I don't know. So anyway, just qualified that. Um, but no, I remember, yeah. So we, we stayed in this subsite there and um, up until our, the conclusion of our event. So like, it was... I definitely, I don't know. I I, I think the, a lot of the reason behind that is to to try and keep the environment really sort of performance focused, um, which it really felt like. It just felt like going to another competition. You know, you go to a hotel room, um, you 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 go to the venue, you do your training, you do your competition, you come back, and it's all sort of like it. It felt very um similar and sort of stock standard for for like a normal um competition situation which i think is exactly what they're trying to replicate yeah um, in in doing the subsite so yeah it was only after the event that i really got to experience like the real kind of like what the flavor of the olympics is um other than yeah being actually at the event site and seeing sort of the grandstands and the crowd and all the noise and all the ex all the extra sort of like paraphernalia that surrounds an olympic um event um yeah it was all kind of like pretty stock standard for me but um but no i think i think it's a uh, again, again it just kind of speaks to that like the olympics is just like nothing else you've ever experienced there's so much that goes around like i remember there was you'd see it was just actually quite funny so like obviously there's a lot of security that goes around olympic games um and there wasn't heaps of snow in sochi that year so um you had like and part of that security is is like a is like there's actually like trained snipers who are like positioned around the venues and things like that. And so you had all of these like, um, like Russian military, like wearing, wearing white ghillie suits, like sniper suits. And they've got like their wow. white tent and it's standing out like, like dog's balls because there's no <laughs> snow around. It was like, they came off the, they're like the anti camouflage. Like I just remember seeing stuff like that and just been like, <laughs> but just sort of the first time in my life I've ever seen like, live firearms, that sort of thing. Like just the level of security was just something else. Just like, well, this is um, obviously you're aware of what a big deal it is and yeah, how high profile the event is. So um, yeah, yeah, those sorts of things are pretty, yeah, they, they, you, you're a bit taken aback by that. Uh, I think the first time you experience it at the first Olympics and then 
at least, you know, I found in my in future experiences, I was sort of like mentally, I just I was like, oh. used to that. It's yeah, fine. yeah, it's, it's yeah. I'm used to guys walking down the street carrying like fully automatic weapons. Yeah, uh, that's just John. There he is yeah. with his gun. You know, that's yeah, just standard. Yeah. Met him back in Sochi. We're good friends now. Which I mean, the experience in Sochi, uh, you know, narrowly missing out on going through to uh, final two. Uh, I mean, obviously the the level of competition. Did you set yourself a goal? I mean, the last minute qualification, the back injury, things like that. Did you sort of leave? being satisfied that you made it through to the first final or did you feel like there was a, a little bit left on the table that maybe uh, things could have gone a bit differently? Um, oh, I think you'll always look back and be like, oh, imagine, you know, what if I did this? You know, what, what outcome could I have generated if I if I had changed, you know, what trick I did here or how fast I skied here or those sorts of things. Um, so I think you'll always kind of look back ret- retrospectively and try and evaluate the performance and learn from it. And I think for me, you know, it was it was like point zero one of a point was the difference between going through to final two and and ending my night um, at the end of final one. And I remember even seeing um, Alex Billadu come because he came down. He was the I think he was the last person to come down uh, in that round of finals. And he had a big mistake on the top jump landing, and I was like, I was like, whoa, I might actually be in with a shot here. Um, and then. Uh, yeah, came there. He ended up like he saved it really well, and he came down and skied a really like the rest of his run was really good. And so I was sort of like, oh yeah, it's, hmm. it's Alex Miller. What was I thinking? <laughs> you know, like he's, he's, yeah, he's already won one Olympics. He's he's coming out here and he ultimately ended up winning the night again that night. So um, like he was very dialed in on that course, and that was just like one random mistake. So um, I did like I was I sort of like I thought all like what would have been, um, and in terms of like my expectations coming into uh that event it was it kind of didn't really matter like what the lead up was like in my mind it was always and i think most athletes have this in your mind it's always regardless of what else is going on in my life whatever else i'm feeling and dealing with whatever i am here in this moment right now and i'm trying to perform the best that i possibly can and achieve the best outcome that i can and that was sort of that was really just the mindset going into it so it was just about trying to ski every run to the to the highest level that I could and execute it to you know, the best of my ability. And then at the end of the day, the, you know, the sort of the results were going to be what they were going to be. It was up to the judges at that point. But, um, but yeah, I, th- I think overall, like I was, yeah, I, I, I walked away sort of like somewhat satisfied. I was like, well, I'm happy I qualified and I got to go to the games and then I made it through to to finals um, to the first round of finals and you know I was this close to, to making it through to the next round of finals so um, yeah there were some positives to take away from it and and a few things that probably could have been done better but I think overall I just found it to be a really motivating experience and like kind of really like lit a fire in my belly for for you know, the rest of my career. Which I can imagine then fast forward eight years because ultimately, you know, sadly Pyeongchang didn't happen, as you mentioned, sort of an injury. You were there but ultimately couldn't compete with the injury. But then eight years to Beijing, you're coming off some great form, fifth in the world at one point, injury-free coming into Beijing for the first Olympics. You haven't come in with a with an injury. I mean, how are you feeling then going into Beijing? And what you obviously alluded to, you kind of knew would be your last Olympics. Um, yeah, I was, I was feeling... Yeah. Fun- so funnily enough, this is, yeah, this is a, uh, this is actually not really common knowledge, but I actually, um, <laughs> my, knowing my luck, I, uh, ended up hurting my, the knee that I injured in 2018, um, at our pre-Olympic training camp in Finland. I 
uh, I, and it wasn't like a, I didn't have a big crash or anything like that. That kind of made me freak out and think, oh, I've, I've done something here. I literally just, I, I woke up one morning um, with a few days to go before we left to go to China and my knee just puffed up. Like I hadn't seen it blow up like that for four years. And I was like, oh no, what have I done here? Here we go again. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> the same old story. Um, and then I sort of, you know, ultimately found out later on that I, I ended up doing some more cartilage, cartilage damage to my meniscus, um, which I had to have surgery uh, for when I got home from the games, which was a bit of a shame, but I was, I was really fortunate. I got to, I got to China and the medical team and the support team there, they, they looked after me so well and we kind of, we managed it so well it got to the point where i was like barely noticing it barely cognizant of it um so i and and really like i was able to like there was nothing holding me back so that actually i remember taking this moment at the at the um right before i pushed out for for finals in um in beijing and i was in the start gate and i just remember being like this is I just took I just took a moment to like just take it all in and be like how good is this i am in the start gate in olympic games and it's all to play for. Like I have nothing, I have nothing holding me back. Like it's not like the last experience in 2018. I'm not like struggling to walk with my, you know, like what how my back was feeling in 2014. Like I'm literally, I'm staying in the and I'm physically in really good shape and I can do what I need to here to um to execute a really, really good run and and um yeah, do what I need to 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 earn a good result. And um that that for me was like a hugely like like it was a really special feeling because I just hadn't had that up until that point in my career. So um, yeah, I took I took that moment to take it in and, and just enjoy the moment. And um, I think the other thing as well was that like that course in China was it was it was tricky and a lot of people were I think having trouble with it because of the snow conditions and the wind and the cold and there was all there was all these sort of factors. But I was having more fun on that course than I had on any other course that season. Like I was loving skiing that course. And even after the event finished, all I wanted to do was keep skiing it. Like for mm. me, that was that there was something a bit like, I always really liked the snow in China. Like I found it to, I got really good feedback through my skis when I'm skiing on that, that cold man-made stuff. So um, I, I would love it. I would, I would land that top jump and just felt like I could just go for it and just let it run and just like the, that feeling for me was just, yeah, just pure exhilaration and, and yeah, really like pure enjoyment. So um, to get that experience as the sort of, as the last event I ever competed in um, as a mobile skier was, was really, really special, really enjoyable. And um, yeah, I feel, I feel very fortunate to have had that. Um, ultimately, I, as is the case in moguls, it's a game of, of millimeters um, and I ended up making a mistake on the bottom jump uh, and drifting slightly too far to the left uh in what was it? i can't remember which round of finals it was now i sort of maybe i've repressed it to some extent <laughs> round two round two. round two and um and yeah ultimately didn't um didn't end up progressing through to round three so i uh yeah it wasn't the sort of cinderella story uh finish that i was hoping especially because of yeah as you alluded to i'd like i'd finally gotten back on the world cup podium the the season prior and was, was top five in the world and was feeling good about my skiing um yeah, ultimately, that's the way sport is. You've got to you've got to deliver on the day and, and perform when it counts most. And um, and I made that little mistake in in that round of finals, and and that ended my 
my night early. So well, I'm, yeah, I'm one for patterns, Brody. I'm one for patterns. I know you've retired, but like, just look at it this way. First Olympics, final one. Second Olympics, final two. Third Olympics, uh, fourth Olympics, if you go on to, to Milan, final three. And also in Milan, it will be 20 years since Dale won the gold in Italy. Like, come on. Like, that's just, it signifies this got to happen there for you. So if you, if you want to come out of retirement for Milan, there's a few things going your way there, I feel. You reckon I should make a comeback? Uh, yeah. Uh, a couple of things there. One, I don't think my body would, would appreciate it. <laughs> I think I've, I've, I've definitely, what I've done to my body over the years is probably it's not thanking me for it. So, um I don't know. As much as I, I love the sport and I still get so much enjoyment out of doing it, I just, yeah, there is, I think there's a point that you reach in your career where you're like, a, your, your body sort of tells you you're done. Um, and I think I reached that point. But the other thing as well, and probably more importantly, is like I've seen since I've retired um, and a few of my other uh, former teammates also retired and announced their retirement after these Olympics, there, it's sort of, it's opened the gates for the next generation of talent to to start filtering through. And I've, seen that over the past sort of four or five months or so at various i've seen sort of like various training clips and little videos here and there and um it's just really exciting to see them them starting to sort of like come up and hit their strides now so um yeah from my perspective i'm just really excited to to see that next generation of talent come up and and see where they can take it um yeah hopefully they take it beyond where we have because that's sort of i guess that's the the nature of of how things progress over time. And um, it would be really special to see that. And for me personally, in terms of my engagement with the sport, I'll still, I'll still remain actively engaged. Um, obviously through my role with the, the ASC athletes commission, I'll get to sort of at a broader level, get to support Australian athletes. And, um, and then at a, at a kind of a more a micro level, more niche level, as it relates to mobile skiing, I'll, I'll try and stay engaged as much as I can by, um, you know, making appearances at, at different events here and there. Like this weekend, for example, I'm going up to, to Mount Buller and um, and I'm judging the Airborne Mogul Challenge. So I'll get to see a lot of the a lot of the uh, the young guns coming up and a few of my old teammates as well. So um, and a few of my old old teammates who are competing in the veterans category. So it's it's yeah. really it's really exciting. You sort of get it's like this multi generational just like congregation of mogul skiers who all come together and just like just love the sport and and have a really good weekend at Mount Buller. So um, yeah, really excited for that. And it's a it's a great way for me to remain connected to the sport. It's great to to see that, and obviously the future. I mean, Cooper making the final, Jakara obviously winning the gold. I mean, moguls Australia has won four out of the last five Olympics, won medal in moguls. So uh, obviously quite a healthy sort of moving forward. The story I loved about Cooper which you know got me excited here, Brody, was uh, that Dale texted Cooper after that final. He got a random text on his phone, basically not having a clue who it was from, from Mr. Beg Smith himself saying, you were robbed. Uh, he's like, I didn't even know how he got my, my number, but you got a text from, like, <laughs> that's just, like, how does that, he's just sitting around on his island somewhere in the Caribbean with all your phone numbers going, ah, yeah, I'm going to text Cooper. You were robbed, mate. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He, uh, I suppose he is an enigma and he works in mysterious ways. So, um I don't know. I know, I know from, like, I think from from all our perspectives, like we sort of we all look up to him as a as a, a bit of a beacon for what greatness in the sport really looks like. So I think for Coop to get a message like that is, you know, can can only be motivating. And um, given where he is at in his career, and and um, to get a bit of positive affirmation like that, and to to um, to spare a bit more fire in his belly and really motivate him to to go for the next four years into the next Olympics, I think it's. Uh, it's really exciting. 
One, one more Dale question. You can clear this up. Private Island. Does he have one? And if so, have you been invited to it? <laughs> I don't actually know. <laughs> I, um, oh, no, I wouldn't be surprised, but, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't be able to comment. I don't know. And, uh, unfortunately, no, if he does have one, I haven't been invited. <laughs> well, if he shows up to the veterans thing this weekend, you could just, you know, ask him potentially, uh, you know, day, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. How's your island going, basically, you know? just Yeah, yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to think that. about how to approach the question. How to, yeah, exactly. How to, uh, yeah, yeah. To, and let him know there's a podcast that is, is, you know, would gladly have him on. And we, we, I don't know if you saw during the Olympics, we had our daily athlete of the day we called the Daily Dale. So we made a little medal up with Dale's face on it, which basically our athlete <laughs> of the day, they got the Daily Dale. So, uh, you know, that's a, uh, more of a, you know, prestigious award, I feel, than an Olympic medal. So, yeah, um, yeah, you, know. yeah you could argue that. Yeah, again, coming out of retirement for, for Milan, you know, on the 20th anniversary of his, his gold medal win, just saying, it's going to... It'd be pretty special to get the Daily Dale. Exactly, the, the, the Daily Dale. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a bunch of get-to-know-yourself questions, which I'll get to in just a moment. But two quick things I wanted to touch on. Your nickname apparently is Hansel. Now, please tell me this is Zoolander-related. Is this Zoolander-related? I think so. Um, yeah, that, uh, I think... Dale actually gave me that nickname. Ah, oh, they're even better. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it was it was back when I had hair. Um, I don't know. I, I got I got a lot of different nicknames over the years. None of which I really was super keen on. But um, but no, I'm pretty sure Dale was the one that uh, that gifted me that nickname. And um, yeah, I remember my my old coaches. They they loved it. They thought it was hilarious. So <laughs> it's a, it stuck for it stuck around for a while. <laughs> Which is when you when you do a great run, that's where they just turn around and go Hansel. So hot right now, Hansel, right? Like that's just got to keep that you know trend going on with that. Yeah, I think yeah, it was it was something to do with the way I used to like comb over my hair or something like that. I had longer <laughs> hair and I used to comb it over. I don't know what it was, but anyway, everyone thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> wow, I mean, and, and if Dale gives it to you, you hold it up extra high there. Now, also, you and I were talking a little bit off air about uh, your love of a Melbourne bakery, but I believe. You're a, a big coffee enthusiast, at least according to your Instagram Instagram profile, and also a bit of a fan of the gourmet muffin, Brody. So, uh, is this living on the the Melbourne cafe lifestyle that you just kind of get addicted to this, and and sort of give us out there people listening in Melbourne, where are your favourite haunts? Where are the good places? Get the gourmet muffins and the coffees. Um, do you know what? There's actually when it comes to coffee, there's no place like home. I was actually just thinking as uh, as I know we're getting close to wrapping up here. I was like. Oh. Three o'clock, I can go make myself a coffee and, uh, and get back to work for the afternoon. So <laughs> it's um, I'm very lucky. I've got a, I've got a really nice setup at home. I've got a, a, a really nice coffee machine, and and that is uh, definitely one of life's little treats. When um, I've sort of spent, I found it to be a really interesting topic, and and tried to educate myself on it quite a lot as well. So um, learning about coffee is is like there's as much to learn about coffee as there is in uh, to learn about wine. I reckon so. There's lots of um, there's lots of little little things to figure out, and um, you know, interesting little tidbits of information, and and just learning how to how to brew a really good tasty cup, a really tasty cup of coffee is. Um, I don't know. It's like it's like one of my my ongoing pursuits in life. I'm, I'm always trying to extract the perfect shot and and get that perfect cup. But um, but that uh, and then muffins. I don't know. I'm sort of a. It's just a. I just I, I just have this addiction to it. It's like if I go if I do happen to be walking into a, a cafe and I, and I see like, you know, they're always sort of like situated on, at the front counter and you see one and yeah. you're just like, I have no <laughs> self-control. Like it's just a, it's like, it's like automatic at this point. Like I just, I see a muffin if it's got fruit and chocolate and I'm like, yep, 
I'll have one of those too, please. I yep. just, I, I can't control myself. So um, generally, I am lucky living in Melbourne. There's a, there's a lot of really good cafe options and, and most of them generally have pretty tasty muffins. Um, at one point there, I thought about maybe even starting a, um, um, like a, an Instagram page, call it, call it like Muffins of Melbourne or something like that. But um, hey, <laughs> decided to be a little bit too much work for me. <laughs> <laughs> you got a follower there already, which I mean, just letting you know, Italy's got really good coffee and muffins, Brody. So <laughs> you're really pushing for this, aren't you? <laughs> just putting it up. I mean, get, you know, <laughs> I, I would, I would love nothing more than to be able to to compete at another Olympic Games, especially in Italy of all places. Like that would just be so special to to do that but um but yeah like i said i think it's uh it could be a bit beyond me at this point in time so i uh i'll be i'll be there in in spirit if i could get there in person to support the team that would be even better and uh and i'm going to try and do that but um but we'll have to see how things play out at least at least if you're there supporting you can drink all the coffee and eat all the muffins and don't have to worry about competing so yeah know. have a nice tasty espresso and actually usually when i'm in europe i i go away from, there's there's not a whole lot in the way of muffins so i gravitate more towards the the uh the pastries like croissants and uh, stuff like that that's that's yes. my go-to an espresso and a croissant when i'm in europe is uh it's yeah, you can't go wrong it's a tasty Good treat <laughs> i like that uh, we're going to wrap up with these get to know. So as I said, these uh, fun get to know questions. These were posed to Team Canada athletes ahead of Rio and Pyeongchang, and it's only fitting that I use a questionnaire given to the goat, Mikhail Kingsbury. This was uh, his questionnaire, and I can always compare your answers to his along the way. So I'm going to start off with what is your favourite all time Olympic moment, and please answer what I hope you answer. <laughs> Beck Smith winning gold in 2006. Thank you very much. It's the uh, most memorable one. <laughs> passed, you passed the interview. Well done. Good job. Yeah. Uh, as a, you, I mean, you've answered this one. As a kid, your favourite sports team, obviously you said West Coast. Were there other sports teams that you sort of followed in any other sporting leagues growing up? Um, no, nothing comes to mind immediately. Like, I've, yeah, I've... To be honest, I, I think I was more of a like a lot of the sports I gravitated towards were actually like individual sports. So, um, and a lot of them would be like Olympic disciplines. So, yeah, it was it was more about the sort of I guess the the individual than than like a professional uh, sporting team. So, um, yeah, big names in sport. Like I remember being a huge fan of like Leighton Hewitt growing up and Andy yes. Roddick and the, those sorts of guys. Oh, like Roddick, was, yes. Yeah. I was a big Roddick fan. He's always get sad every year he lost to Roger in the Wimbledon final. I'm like, come on, you know, just yeah. give Roddick one. And on that quick fire question, uh, Roger, Rafa, or Novak, who's the goat there? <laughs> That's a tough question. Um, I mean, Rafa's got it on on num on number of slams now, hasn't he? Yeah, he's he's, I think he's one he's, one a, one ahead. He's one of, ahead. Yeah. Of, yeah, and but. In terms of like my favorite player to actually watch, like I just I can't go past Roger. He is, yeah. it's like poetry in motion. It literally like I've never seen someone like he he's like the equivalent of Dale Beksmith in tennis for me. Like just the the, the craft there, the level of of um, expertise is is yeah, it's just beautiful to watch. I, I really think people need to describe Roger Federer more often as the Dale Beksmith of tennis. So, um... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That would work very well moving forward. I'm going to get a T-shirt uh, that says that. If you could be any superhero, who would you be? <laughs> That's a... Uh, um... I don't know. I, I, I used to I used to always wear I don't know if he's do you call him a superhero? He's a bit of a vigilante, I suppose. I used to always wear a Batman costume growing up as a kid. I was a massive Batman fan. Um but Batman can't fly, so maybe Superman. Okay. I, wanted, well, I, I always say. wanted to fly. 
Mikhail says Batman. So uh, yeah, okay. Know, that's and he's actually got a picture here of in, on his Instagram of him dressed as Batman. So <laughs> actually, I think I've seen that photo. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, if you could be an Olympian in any other sport besides your own, what would it be? Uh, you know what? I reckon at the moment, given my current obsession, it's probably going to be golf. I nice. uh, I have a I have a proper addiction to the sport of golf and. Um, as as much as I wish I was better than I am, I, I'm trying really hard. But it seems like the harder you try in golf, the worse you get. <laughs> so, um, it's the I mullet. It you need to grow a mullet like Cam. That's what you like got to do, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think it's possible at my stage in life. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the opposite of what you could go on right at the moment. But uh, yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> I started going bald in my twenties, and it's yeah. I don't think that one's reversible. So <laughs> get the mullet wig. You know, that's what you need to get. You know, be like Cam. The, Cam yeah. Smith, the Dale Big Smith of golf. So um, if, you know. and if I could have a short game like Cam, I would be a very very happy camper. <laughs> but uh, but no, it's it's a bit out of reach at this point in time. I'll keep trying though. Never say never. Brisbane, twenty thirty two. Yeah. You could be there yeah, uh, yeah. on on the yeah. courses there. Your favorite music artists are. Ooh, um, huge Bonavere fan. Um, okay. I don't know. I, I I like a lot of. I actually remember. I remember Cooper asked me one time. Like this is. I don't even know if he'll remember this, but it kind of stood out to me in my memory. He's like, he's like, you listen to like really. Do you find that you just always need something to help you relax? Because all of the music is like so chilled out. <laughs> and I was, I was like, I don't know. Like I just, I guess I gravitate more towards that. But I find there's a, there's a, there's a particular genre for for any kind of situation. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, if I if I am just at home with friends having a, having dinner or something like that, like yeah, something more relaxed is is perfect. If if I'm in the gym doing a really hard gym session, I want to listen to something generally a bit angry. Like, like when we used to do really hard sessions on the Watt bike and it really hurt. Like I just need to, I need to get angry so I can get fired up. Um, if it's studying, I usually listen to like classical piano, that sort of stuff. So I've sort of, you know, there's a, there's a genre for every situation. I liked it. That's a great answer. And it is absolutely true. There, there really is. That's a, that's a perfect answer for that one. I might know the answer to this. If you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> It's probably it's probably Woodfrog Bakery fruit toast. <laughs> it um yeah, it's really got me. It's like my kryptonite. I just can't yeah, I can't can't go past it. I'm so, gonna try this. When I'm in Melbourne next, I, I'm definitely yeah. gonna try this. It sounds yeah. too good to to let up. Yeah. Free shout out for Woodfrog. Exactly. Sponsor sponsor Brody. There you go. You get these yeah. muffins of uh Instagram, the fruit breads of uh, you know, Melbourne on Instagram. So that that could work. Uh your favorite place to compete is or was, I guess now. Um, yeah, hard to go past Deer Valley is it, there is, it's that combination of the, the challenge, the challenging aspect of the course, the venue itself, the, the crowd that it, that it brings, um, the atmosphere on the night. Like I remember I got my first world cup podium competing under lights at, at night at Deer Valley and one of the most memorable experiences of my career. Like I just, it was super, super special. So I think, yeah, there'll always be a special place in my heart for, for Deer Valley. Mikhail answered exactly the same one as well. And he might answer the same thing for this one for you. Your favourite thing to do yeah. in the summer is? Golf. Yeah, he's exactly the same. <laughs> have, you, have, have you hit the course with him before? Like, you know, do you bump shoulders up? Like, Come on, mate, let's go, let's go hit some, um, have a couple of rounds. I think we one time had a, there was like a pitch and putt course uh, up in New South Wales when we trained on snow up in Perisher. And I think we one time 
played a pitch and putt like a few of the Aussie guys and a few of the Canadian guys, but I think that's the only time we've done it. It's actually one thing was I want to do. Was he good? Was he was he good? Oh, or was, did you beat him in golf? Like you beat Macau Kingsbury. <laughs> he's good at everything. Um, I can't remember. I, th- I think at the time I was probably a lot worse than I am now. So he probably beat me. But um, but no, it's something I actually. This is a bit of a dream of mine. I don't know if it's a pipe dream at this point in time, but I, I want to get it over the line. Um, I want to have like a bit of a reunion. Like a lot of the guys on the Mogul Tour over the last like yeah five to ten years, like we've all been really close and really good friends and. And obviously want to like, you know, maintain those and look after those friendships going forward. Golf is like one of those things that you sort of, you can all do together, even though you're at varying levels because of the handicapping system. So I love the idea of having like a, you know, every couple of years, get a bunch of the old mobile skiers from all over the world together in some part of the world and just like hang out and play golf for a week, something like that. Yeah. That would, that I love the idea of that. So I'm, I've got it in the pipeline. I've got to try and try and figure out you know, how to get it over the line. Perfect. We'll, we'll keep an eye on that one there. Last question for you today, Brody. Your favourite cartoon to watch growing up was? Oh. Oh, I can't even remember. My, um, my, my memory of my childhood is, is not great. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of like, in terms of my actual ability to, like, I, have, I had a, I had a wonderful childhood. Qualify that, but um, no, I just, I literally can't remember. Like, what did I? Um, maybe it was like The Simpsons or something like that. I just can't remember. <laughs> okay, uh, Mikhail, you've got a lot of answers similar here. Maybe it's a moguls, uh, mogul athletes thing. Uh, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I guess we're all sort of like-minded people that uh, yeah. maybe have, have a few screws missing to to do the sport that we did <laughs> or do. So maybe that's what it is. <laughs> maybe who knows, Brody? Before we let you go, social media things that people can follow you in your next chapter of your life. Where can people stay up to date with Brody Summers? Um, I'll, I'll try. I mean, I'm not super active on Instagram these days, but a little bit here and there. So at Brody Summers on Instagram, and um, I guess in terms of what I'm doing professionally in the future, probably LinkedIn would be the place to find me. So um, there you go. Yeah, trying to trying to become a little bit more uh, professional in other areas in my life. Well, we'll see how that plays out. And uh, it has been an absolute pleasure, not just obviously for the Dale talk, you know, that's obviously been the highlight clearly, but uh, it really has been a fun time chatting here, Brody. I'm impressed that I didn't become the 7,822nd person to make some sort of reference to the fact that, haha, you're last name summer and you're a winter athlete. But it's uh, been... A- <laughs> you, got, you got there now. <laughs> yeah, I did. I had to get it in. You know, so I took it off the bucket list. There we go. Uh, but we appreciate your time. And I'll just say this right now. Your interview today is the Dale Beg Smith of interviews that we've had on Off the Podium. Oh, well, thanks very much. I'm. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be on. I'm glad I could uh, indulge you in some way with with some of uh, my knowledge around Dale. And... Um, And yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure to chat to you today, Ben. So thanks for having me. And a massive thanks to Brody for his time. An incredible chat there, learning about his career. Obviously, uh, what's to come from it. I'm glad he liked our idea with Kieran and Bradbury in B- uh, Brisbane in 2032. Hopefully, that will take off. We're just really hoping to get it out there. So, by all means, spread the word. Spread the word. And uh, ultimately, too, all the Olympic experiences, overcoming injury, and everything else in between, and all the Dale stories. You know how iconic that is. I- I'm still standing by. He's got the island. That no one's ever denied it. No one's ever flat out said no that's bullshit he doesn't have an island that he lives on so saying right now that it's it's true and i'm hoping that one day just like cooper i'm just going to get a text one day it's just going to be hey it's dale yes i have an island you were robbed and that's it that'll that'll be enough that'll that'll satisfy my life 
that's it. I've achieved peak life at that moment there. But a big thanks to Brody for his time. Great to chat with him on the show today. If you want to see the video version of this interview, of course, hit us up on our YouTube channel. You can see it on there. Subscribe to us on YouTube as well so you can see all our other great video interviews that we do have available on there for you as well. And subscribe to us on all good podcast platforms to never miss an audio episode. And follow us on all the social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, to never miss an episode or never miss any content that we've got going out there or all the other great things that we've got going on social media as well. And remember, send us a message. Let us know what you think of the show, who you want on the show, all that sort of jazz. If you know where Dale is, let us know. Hit us up and uh, we'll be glad to hear from you. Now, in the coming weeks, so many great interviews. We say this every single week, but it's true. And next episode, next episode. So get pumped, get excited. It's breakdancing time. It's finally here. Next year, of course, at the Paris Olympics, breakdancing is making its debut at the Olympic Games. And we have for you, I'm going to tell you who we've got on the show right now. Gerard Cabellon, who is Australia's premier male breakdancer. And we're going to learn a bit more about the sport, what it is, how you win a gold medal and everything else in between. So it is going to be a great chat that I know you're going to love and you're going to be educated. Just like when we had Tom O'Halloran on about a year out from Tokyo, learning about sport climbing, a sport that, of course, at that time we knew very little about. So this is a sport now that we know very little about and we're going to learn a lot more about that. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a great chat and I know you're going to love that. And in a post-Gerard world, we've got some other great athletes coming on the show. We've got our first ever athlete from the sport of archery. Given that away, our first ever soccer athlete, given that away as well, and plenty of other sports that we are returning to that we know you are going to love. So pump yourself up, get excited. There's plenty to keep you entertained with here on Off the Podium. Shout out again to the Birmingham Bull, as always. Got to give that shout out before we close the episode off. Thanks again to Brody for his time. Thanks again for everybody for joining us on the show today. My name is Ben. This has been Off the Podium, and we will speak to you next time. And remember to go left. Start making it through just like pasta, pasta, and some water. And some water. When you dance down the street with the cloud at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, senor. But you see back in old Napoli, that's a morning.